Welcome back to Art Holes, everyone. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has no authority whatsoever to be talking about any of this, really. This is episode five of the Jackson Pollock series, so so you know the deal now. Uh, This episode should be going out right around Thanksgiving time. And for my listeners in the States, uh, while you're eating some delicious turkey and stuffing and that disgusting green bean casserole that's crusted with greasy fried onions... Let's not forget that the population of native peoples here in 1492 was anywhere from 5 to 15 million. And after roughly 1,500 U.S. government-authorized wars, attacks, and raids, and a handful of infected blankets, that number dropped to fewer than 238,000 at the close of the 19th century. But you're not here to have me ruin your Thanksgiving. And if this episode sounds a little different, uh, it's because I'm recording in my parents' closet this time, and I'm sick. Uh, Not from infected blankets, but from Delta Flight 40. But let's jump right back into our story. Uh, Here's the deal with Lee Krasner's second go at Jackson. Lee definitely remembered that night of the Christmas party with Jackson. Uh, Honestly, it's probably hard not to. And Lee had been following his career ever since. Uh, And as to whether or not they had sex that night, uh, jury's out. Jackson had some impotency problems, which we'll get into a little bit later in the story. It, It wouldn't be an art hole series without a detailed discussion on someone's penis. Plus, throw in how drunk Jackson was that night and it being his first time with Lee and his anxiety issues. I'm going to guess it probably didn't happen. But Jackson was known enough in the New York City art circles and Lee had been keeping tabs on him since then. He was handsome. She saw the raw talent in his art, the same thing that Graham saw. So Lee was drawn to Jackson. And for her part, Lee was 33 years old at a time when it was considered odd for her to be that age and single. It's not because you're not hot. I would love to tap that ass. I would tear that ass up. I can't let you in because you're old as fuck. For this club, not, you know, for the earth. As we talked about in the last episode, she was considered not pretty for the time and was very aggressive and outspoken. Men, men didn't really dig that sort of thing back then. They wanted young, apron-tied, and super hot. This was the heyday of a very intense existential struggle with men. They couldn't figure out how to have women simultaneously barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, but also with the heels on. Barefoot and pregnant and keep the heels on, it was like the Schrodinger's cat of misogyny. Lee was getting worried that she spend the rest of her life alone, and she often referred to herself as an old maid. In her mind, time was running out, so might as well reintroduce herself to Jackson and just see what happens. When Jackson answered the door, he was nursing a hangover from an all-night binge, which at this point, if that surprises you, I probably deeply hate you as a person, really to your core. Lee walked into Jackson's studio and saw it was an absolute disaster. There were paintings stacked up against the walls. It was just a completely ramshackle situation. Jackson wasn't blowing anybody away with his art technically, but Lee went through Jackson's paintings and she confirmed her own suspicions that there was, there was something there. They hung out and talked for a bit, but didn't see each other again until a few weeks later when Jackson drunkenly stumbled into Lee's studio. I don't think Jackson ever had a woman show proactive interest in him before. He had no idea what was happening, so dating or courting or whatever they called it back then, Lee really had to drive the train here. Because, uh, that was a poor choice of words, but Lee had to be in charge. And she knew she had to proceed kind of slowly because Jackson was, you know, Jackson. But Lee kept pushing for the two of them to spend time together, and he just kind of weirdly passively agreed, kind of like Leroy being dragged around the West by Stella. And Jackson's interest in Lee, passively, that that happened until he got the sense that Lee's focus was to take care of him and nurture him, and then it wasn't so passive. And then Jackson started to get those Stella feels, only it was with someone who was actually nurturing, not baited the nurturing hook and kept pulling back on the reel. I'm in the mood for love. 
because there was no way Jackson wasn't going to have weird mommy issues in his dating life, you know, now that he wasn't straight up sexually assaulting women. So here's the situation. Uh, Jackson was the safe guy who would never leave Lee, and Lee was the mommy Jackson never had. Fucking gross. And after lots of cajoling from Lee, because Jackson wasn't really sure what was happening, Lee Krasner and Jackson Pollock began seriously dating. Lee started to bring Jackson around to her friends at the Hoffman School, people within her art group. And everyone could tell right away that there was almost an inevitability that they would end up together. Someone said they were, quote, psychologically embedded in each other. And psychologically embedded feels pretty accurate. We don't have to rehash how both of them grew up, but their childhood traumas are ready-made for each other to form a solidly codependent relationship. Some of Lee's friends thought that Jackson was, quote, mentally deficient, which is totally fair because he would just sit there and not talk to anybody. Most adults don't really do that. Most adults use their words, and people were concerned. But on Jackson's side, everyone was elated now that Lee was in the picture. Arloy saw that Lee was take charge and straightforward, and she was thrilled that there was finally someone who could take Jackson off of her and Sandy's hands. Because Arloy was pregnant at this point, and it was in no mood for Jackson. Arloy encouraged Jackson to spend a lot of time at Lee's studio, not their place, and she would lock him out of the apartment during the day. Arloy was done with this nonsense. And pretty soon after Lee came into Jackson's life, Stella decided that she'd like to take a trip to New York and see her boys. And Jackson dealt with that impending arrival exactly as you'd expect. The day before Stella got to New York, Jackson disappeared on what was such an epic bender that he woke up at Bellevue Hospital. Stella ended up staying in New York for three months, and Jackson did not handle it well. Uh, they never spent a night under the same roof, and Stella didn't say a single word about Jackson's art. She took visitors and wanted to meet Jackson's art friends. She loved the success of Jackson's surroundings, conceptually. It was the life she always wanted, you know, ever since she was a high schooler in Tingley, Iowa, but she didn't really care about Jackson's role in that world. And at some point, Sandy and Arloy and their new daughter, Karen, they moved to Connecticut and they took Stella with them. Because Jackson couldn't afford rent on his own, that meant it was the perfect timing for Lee to move into Jackson's apartment and studio. And Lee immediately fell into a life of taking care of Jackson and doing everything to support him and maintain his attention. It was the Igor and the Irving situation all over again. She made sure that Jackson always had food to eat, even though she never really cooked before. She stopped painting and basically became his housekeeper, keeping an eye over Jackson to make sure that he completed his commissions for the WPA. This is the Igor thing we talked about last episode. Lee was doing everything possible to keep Jackson from leaving. Even if it was at the cost of her own identity, she became the nice Jewish housewife that she never wanted to be. The more time that Jackson spent with Lee, the less time he spent with anyone else and became increasingly isolated. Uh, so a lot of people thought that Lee was manipulating and isolating Jackson so she could control his success. But what was really happening was that Jackson was leaning on Lee heavily and yearning to be taken care of because he's still a scared little boy who needs his mommy. And whatever Jackson's whims were, Lee would work to take care of them. The way it was explained was, if Lee gave herself to Jackson, it was the only way she could be dominated by him. It's the relationship cycle that she's been stuck in since Irving, her brother-slash-dad. So Lee wasn't reigning over Jackson like everyone thought. She was lowering herself and becoming more subservient in order for him to be able to reign over her in a way. It's, well, I mean, call it whatever you want. This was never going to be a healthy relationship. Lee was also responsible for having an extraordinary influence on Jackson's art. She came from that Hoffman school, which was much more European and Picasso-centric and, and much more expansive in its technique and skill. And Lee was pushing for Jackson's paintings to be more abstract. 
She tried to teach Jackson about cubism, which was an art technique invented by our boy Picasso and another artist named George Brock in the period soon after we left Picasso's origin story series. We'll definitely get into cubism in much more detail when we pick back up the Picasso story, so, and I'm sure this is an extreme oversimplification based on my surface-level research, but what Picasso and Brock did was they incorporated space-time into painting, which is just crazy. Cubism was a style of painting that broke an image down into component parts, and from there you could show the image from multiple angles within a single painting, allowing you to look at a painted image from simultaneous angles and in multiple dimensions at once. And I feel like that is objectively pretty cool. I'm going to post an example of a Picasso painting from the early stages of Cubism. And again, that's at Art Holes Podcast. I want to show early on when Cubism was in its raw concept and form, before Picasso started adding boobs, his junk, and women he'd made cry into everything. And the painting is called Still Life with a Bottle of Rum, and it's from 1911. And as you can imagine, Jackson's brain had a very difficult time immediately understanding the concept of space-time within art. So when Lee was trying to describe cubism to Jackson with one of his paintings as an example, she accidentally touched it with a brush and left a red mark. And Jackson went absolutely apoplectic and was furious with her for several months, and so they never really talked about art theory again. Might as well avoid difficult topics with your partner, especially when it's about the thing you both do professionally. Maybe that's super healthy. There was also another art movement that had made its way through Europe in the 20s and 30s, and, and really pushing into the 40s that we need to talk about. Surrealism. Surrealism was both a visual and literary movement, but we're only really going to talk about the visual component. Again, this is just my cursory research for purposes of understanding how this affects Pollock. I didn't want to get too far into it until we covered a surrealist artist, most of whom are absolutely crazy, so those are going to be fun series. The term surrealism was coined in March 1917 by none other than Guillaume Apollinaire. If you listen to Picasso's origin story, you might remember that this was the well-known writer in France who was very good friends with Picasso, and he also wrote very graphic and violent pornography. This guy was all over the place. Apollinaire first used the term to describe a ballet called Parade. Somebody said the ballet was realistic, and he was like, no, it's surrealistic. It's something that's beyond what's real. And the surrealism movement, it originated out of the Dadaism movement, which was an art movement that had a, a very nihilistic feel to it. It was anarchy, the idea that everything is nonsense. Man, they Emma. were nihilists, man. Huh? They kept saying they believed in nothing. Nihilists. Fuck me. Even the name Dada was picked by somebody putting a knife into a dictionary, and that was the word it hit. Dada was the French word for wooden horse for children, so they became Dadaists, and the Dadaists eventually morphed and at some point adopted the term surrealism and became surrealists. Again, cursory research, I'll do a much deeper dive when we cover Salvador Dali or someone like that. And over the years, surrealism, this idea of what's real and what's beyond real, it started to spread amongst writers and artists, and it started to incorporate uh, psychology, especially Freudian psychoanalysis. Specifically Freud's theories on free association and dream analysis and the unconscious mind, it was very much a psychologically driven art movement. And surrealist artists pushed boundaries by combining separate elements that weren't normally found together to create something illogical. So what you'd end up getting are paintings that combine reality with a dreamlike state, and you would bend images and distort reality, and the resulting image was the thing that you wanted to express. And I'm going to post a painting called The Persistence of Memory by Salvador Dali, which was an iconic painting of the Surrealist movement. 
That's the painting that has all the melting stopwatches. It's a painting that I'd even heard of. A, a desperate breath of art oxygen during 30 plus years of drowning in my own ignorance. In the persistence of memory, the pliability of the watches is an unconscious symbol of time and space and how everything is relative. The painting is a critique and an attack on our psychological desires to believe that there's order in chaos. And surrealism was an art movement that pushed more in the direction of incorporating the internal rather than just trying to capture a pure representation of the external. And I'm into that idea. There's only so many landscapes and Madonna and child paintings that you can look at. It gets super boring. One of the most important techniques that derived from surrealism that would eventually have an enormous impact on Jackson once his frantic brain could conceptualize it was called automation or automatism. Automatism was a way of creating where you sort of check out while you're doing it. The art is created in an almost quasi-hypnotic state in which you abandon conscious control and just let whatever happens happen. You're on intellectual autopilot. In this surrealist influence, this technique of automation was right on point with what Jackson's better art mentors, uh, Sequeiros, John Graham, what they wanted him to do. Go inside and pull out whatever was in there. At this point, the violence of World War II and the German occupation of Europe eventually pushed a lot of the European artists into exile in America, especially the Surrealists in France. So by early 1941, Max Ernst, Marc Chagall, André Breton, Pete Mondrian, Salvador Dali, André Masson, they were all living in New York. And American artists, they were incredibly excited that the Surrealists were here. They now had the opportunity to learn from incredibly famous artists who would challenge their ideas, infuse New York with new techniques and skill. And the impact that the Surrealists had on the New York art scene was a powder keg of inspiration, but not in the way that everyone expected. Because basically the Surrealists were insufferable assholes. They were incredibly condescending towards American artists. They completely kept to themselves and didn't really talk to anyone. Uh, the artists who could speak English refused to, and they called the Americans, quote, grubby. And on top of that, the Surrealists lived an incredibly self-indulgent lifestyle that the American artists thought was garish and inappropriate. And not just because the Americans were living with wartime rations and shortages and American artists themselves were super broke. But with Americans now fighting and dying in Europe for European freedom, the Surrealists being dicks to Americans came off as a little ungrateful. And also, American artists were weirded out by how all of the Surrealists were basically unquestioning in their obedience to André Breton, the head of the Surrealist art movement in Europe. They were all kind of like little art lemmings. So that American cowboy spirit, it ended up pushing the Americans away from the Surrealists. But worst of all, the thing that pissed the Americans off the most was with all of these famous surrealist artists now living in New York, all of the New York galleries and museums wanted European surrealist art, not American art. So this whole situation was hitting Americans where it hurt the most, the wallet. Because if there are two things we know about America for sure, it's don't tell us what to do, Frenchie, and give me my fucking money. Where's my money, bitch? I ain't gonna keep asking nice. Where's the money, Lebowski? Where's the fucking money, shithead? Show me the money. You're gonna fight with Jimmy Conway? He wants his money. Give him his money and let us just get the fuck out of here. Hey, fuck him. Here's a suggestion. Um, have the money by tomorrow and there won't be any problems. Pay that man his money. So it wasn't a teacher-student relationship with the Surrealist that drove American art. The best things in life are free. It was resentment. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I see. And the American artists, they weren't really as impressed as they thought they were going to be with the perceived intellectual and artistic superiority of the Surrealists. 
It's the old adage, never meet your heroes. The American artists got a close-up view and they weren't as impressed as they thought they were gonna be. So now there was a growing idea and confidence that there was no reason why the next great Western art movement couldn't come from America. Even Jackson, who was getting better but still wasn't that great of an artist yet, he wasn't even really impressed. Surrealism had been around for a while now, and people wanted something new. And one of the people who also saw the need for something new was someone who would become one of the most important figures in American art, a well-known collector and art gallery owner named Peggy Guggenheim. We're going to get to Peggy in a few minutes, but just enough to give some context to the story. Peggy Guggenheim is 100% getting her own series. I already have the books. Peggy was not only known for her art collection and her gallery, but also for her, quote, flamboyant lifestyle. In 1942, Peggy Guggenheim opened her new art gallery in New York called Art of This Century. She was planning on putting on a collage show in the spring of 1943, and Peggy was considering including some American artists, even though New York was now flush with European masters. That Peggy even considered including American artists was another indication that people were starting to look to Americans now for art, not just to Europeans. And from what I can gather, a collage show was when multiple artists were picked to display their paintings, maybe one or two apiece. It's a showcase situation where people can also purchase the paintings. For Jackson to put forward any of his previous art for consideration was completely pointless. His quality before 1942 wasn't there, and most of the spring and summer of 1942 was wasted in a combination of liquor, not handling Stella's visit well, and Sandy's perceived abandonment. But now that Lee was living with him, Jackson finally had enough stability in his life to really begin to let loose on his canvases. So everything that Jackson had been learning recently, from his work with Sakaros and Graham, his dickhead psychologist Henderson helping to unshackle him artistically, uh, the confessional aspect of Picasso's work, and then embracing and working with automation, Jackson was finally starting to put himself unrestrained on his canvases. And by the end of 1942 and beginning of 1943, Jackson produced three paintings that would put him on the map of the American art scene. I mean, not just as a disaster with some sort of artistic potential, but with a tangible product. There was no longer that bleak and ruddy coloring of the self-portrait, the uh, naked man with a knife, that weird daunting family scene with Rita slash Stella, the figure with the large breasts. There was an aggressiveness and confidence in these paintings, and I'm going to put up all three for this episode's posts. The first is called Stenographic Figure, and it's very likely a painting of Lee and Jackson. She has that taut, proud body that I had to awkwardly say a few episodes ago, uh, smaller breasts, and, and as the figures in his paintings, uh, when the breasts get smaller, he's transitioning from Stella to Lee. It's, it's weird. And it's also Lee's face, and she's looking aggressively towards an introverted figure that's apparently Jackson, I guess. Of all three of these paintings, this was the toughest for me to visually identify people's analysis of what it was. The second painting was called Moon Woman, and that painting is definitely Lee. With Lee, for the first time, Jackson, he saw what a willing sexual partner looked like. So, Moon Woman was a softer, more vulnerable, and intimate sexual painting. The historical consensus is that this painting was Jackson putting onto canvas for the first time a sense of sexual fulfillment and release that he now had, rather than when he was straight up screaming at women and trying to sexually assault them. But in the third painting called Male and Female, Jackson was starting to get to the heart of something else. The painting is of two figures, both with male and female characteristics and traits. And for me, just like the Naked Man with a Knife was an iconic painting to, to get a hold of Jackson's art and mental state before, this is the painting to see if you want to see Jackson emerging not only as an artist, but also exploring something about himself that he was unable to do before. 
The figure on the right has breasts and pink skin like the figure in Moon Woman. But there's also a penis that's straight up ejaculating everywhere in different colors created with a drip technique that, well, well, we'll have to wait on that. And the figure on the left, the figure has breasts, long and feminine eyelashes, but also testicles and a really long penis. It was in this painting that Jackson finally acknowledged his struggle with understanding his own sexuality. And we've talked about before how hard it must have been for anyone to be gay back then or trending that way on the sexual spectrum. Now imagine Jackson trying to wrestle with that, with his father being homophobic, and he probably had no idea Benton was gay as he was railing against gay people constantly. And then there's the boxcar hobo situation, and don't get me wrong, in no way am I saying that rape is a sexual activity. But it had to be incredibly traumatic for Jackson to even want to consider exploring a physical relationship with a man after that. But just like we're going to have to wait for the drips, we're going to have to wait a little bit more before we dive deeper into Jackson's sexuality. As Jackson was finishing this new round of paintings, Franklin Delano Roosevelt shut down the WPA in December of 1942. There was no more need for a government-sponsored art program, and artists panicked. Now Jackson and Lee were completely broke, so Jackson had to take a job applying label designs to lipstick tubes and neckties. And for two months, he stopped painting again and just drank a shit ton and worked in some awful factory. And being a bit of a misogynist, he also wanted Lee home and not working. Jackson was determined to make his living as an artist only. And not a commercial artist for a company or anything. Just producing and selling his own art, which was a ridiculous thing to consider. Not just for him, but nobody was really doing that back then in America. It just wasn't economically feasible. But if there was one person who could help an American artist become a full-time professional painter like in Europe, it was Peggy Guggenheim. So let's talk about Peggy. Peggy was born into the ridiculously wealthy Guggenheim family. Meyer Guggenheim, the family patriarch, was a 19th century mining magnate, and that's the initial source of the family's money, but Meyer and his family were incredibly business savvy and the family's fortune kept growing. Meyer's son, Benjamin Guggenheim, he was Peggy's father, and their entire family, they, they had a lot of issues. Uh, but Benjamin used to bring Peggy to Paris every summer, and Paris became a second home. And the two of them, they very much bonded on these trips, and through all of his faults, Peggy adored her father. That is, until Benjamin died on the Titanic. And Peggy was devastated. It was said that she spent the rest of her life trying to find someone to replace him. Peggy eventually gave up on the rest of her family, who she called stupid and bourgeois, and became sort of a rich bohemian wanderer in Paris. She ran in the art circles of Montparnasse, that's the art center of Paris, and she eventually met and married a man in Paris named Laurence Vale, who was this out-there guy who people referred to as, quote, the king of bohemia. But after six years of marriage and two children, Peggy was done with Lawrence. Mainly because he had an explosive temper, as evidenced by the time in Paris he got into a fight with a chandelier. And also because Lawrence constantly had sex with his own sister, Cotilde. Everyone in this story is disgusting. After leaving Lawrence, Peggy was single for a while. That is, until she met an Englishman named John Holmes, not the 1970s porn star, whose English accent and intellect thrilled Piggy, even though his drinking didn't, because John Holmes was a raging alcoholic. But that relationship ended when Holmes went into surgery for a completely routine operation, but he forgot to tell the doctor that he'd been drinking nonstop the night before, and when the doctors gave him anesthesia, his heart stopped and he died. So that was a bummer. And Peggy gave up on men for a while and turned to art, where she became a well-known patron and collector in Paris. She still had random affairs, like with the English writer and artist William Penrose, 
who Peggy had to stop sleeping with because Penrose could only get off if he bound a woman's wrist together, which Peggy said was incredibly uncomfortable. And Peggy eventually made her way to New York with the surrealist artist that she hung out with and began working on making New York her new home. So when Peggy opened up the Art of the Century Gallery in 1942, it was an enormous development for American artists. There was now a growing satellite art center outside of Paris, and it was in New York. Mr. What you call him, what you do and tonight. Hope you're in the mood because I'm feeling just right. And it was centered around a woman who had the cachet to make it happen. Even though Peggy's new gallery was in New York, she was still stuck in the European and Parisian mindset. Peggy had problems trusting new things in her life. Men, artists, she'd been burned so many times by pretty much everyone that she had problems branching out, including taking risks with new art and artists. But then she hired a new assistant, advisor, and gallery manager named Howard Putzel. Howard Putzel was overweight, an alcoholic who loved martinis, stuttered, was an epileptic, and was gay, again at a time where that was not okay. Howard's own mother called him, quote, an insane and embarrassing nuisance. And I wholeheartedly disagree. Everything I've read about Howard Putzel sounds 100% awesome. Howard also had an unbelievably talented eye for art, and he was one of the main driving forces behind convincing Peggy to take a risk in American artists. And according to Peggy's son, Peggy abused Howard relentlessly and treated him like an indentured servant. Peggy Guggenheim got a lot of credit for opening up New York to the world's art stage and really introducing American artists to the world, but it was really Howard Putzel who was the engine behind that. And most importantly for our story here, Howard immediately saw something in Jackson Pollock. Years later, when Jackson was famous, everyone would say that they saw genius in his art right away, but that's not true. But Howard, he was public and effusive about his praise of Jackson from minute one. So when Peggy was planning her April 1943 collage of American artists, Howard proposed that Jackson be included. Peggy said yes, but she sort of had to. She couldn't exactly ignore Howard, who basically ran everything and was brilliant, but she also already allowed a painting in from a woman named Gypsy Rose Lee, who was a famous stripper. She was slightly less famous for getting away with murdering her mother's gay lover after she tried to sleep with Gypsy Rose. And yes, Gypsy Rose Lee murdering her mother's lover was incredibly annoying to research, with Gypsy Rose Blanchard having recently murdered her mother after years of Munchausen by proxy. So with a murdering stripper getting a crack at this show, Peggy couldn't really tell her most trusted advisor no. And Jackson was allowed to submit a painting to try to make the final cut for the show, as long as the rest of the judges agreed. This was basically an American Idol audition situation. Uh, Peggy, Marcel Duchamp, uh, Pete Mondrian, Howard, they would choose the final 40 or so paintings for the show. Jackson submitted stenographic figure, which Peggy called dreadful. But when Mondrian walked through the paintings, he stopped at stenographic figure and just stared. Peggy gave her opinion to Mondrian, but he just grunted. And when everyone kept walking to see more paintings, Mondrian was still standing there, staring at stenographic figure. Mondrian was sold. He didn't necessarily know why, and he just gave a nod. Later, people would find out that Madrian was trying to prove a point to Peggy, that she was too narrow-minded, and he gave the yes to Jackson so that she would say yes to one of his protégés. But having Madrian accept your painting was legit one small step down at this point from Picasso saying yes. The painting didn't sell at the show, so Jackson and Lee were still basically broke at this point, but it was a huge step for Jackson commercially. Jackson was still working that shitty job applying labels to products until he got super drunk one day and destroyed the basement and got fired. With Jackson and Lee at their worst point financially, Howard Putzel kept pushing Peggy to give Jackson his own solo show at her gallery. 
Howard's point was, not only was Jackson a raw and brilliant painter, but a solo show for an American would be marketing gold. But it wasn't until Marcel Duchamp gave Jackson's work a surprisingly positive review that Peggy was sold on the idea. So the date was set. In November of 1943, Jackson Pollock was going to have his own show at Peggy Guggenheim's gallery in New York. This is absolutely insane. Think of the journey we've been on so far. The scared little boy from the farm now has his first solo show at Peggy Guggenheim's gallery. To prepare for the show, Peggy would pay Jackson $150 a month for the rest of the year, which would be deducted from any of the sales from the show. And on top of that, Peggy commissioned Jackson to paint her an enormous mural that was going to be put in the entrance hall to her apartment. For an American artist, this was unheard of, and now Jackson was a working professional artist. And to make room to paint Peggy's mural, Jackson tore down the wall that separated his and Sandy's old studio. By August of 1943, Jackson was churning out like two paintings a week for the show. Jackson would just look at a blank canvas, and with no plan, his subconscious and use of automation just took over. He no longer even attempted to plan his paintings like most other artists did or use the same techniques they did. He was just unleashing himself. And if you get the chance, really look at any artist prior to Jackson Pollock's painting starting in 1942-1943. There's really nothing out there like it, whether that's a good thing or not. And I'm going to post Guardians of the Secret, which is one of Jackson's paintings from 1943 that he made for the show. Apparently, that was his attempt at sort of a family portrait of the Pollock family sitting around a table back in the day, or at least it started out that way. The only remaining family members are Stella and Leroy at either ends of the table, and dear sweet Jip, who's the only truly recognizable image in the painting. Think about that. We are still dealing with a lost little boy who misses his dog. And if that's your brain gurgling out the image of your family, whoa. Howard was the one who was most hands-on with Jackson preparing for the show. If Peggy even cared to inquire about anything, she did it through Lee, who was working in overdrive to make sure the show went well. Lee had basically given up her entire life for Jackson at this point, and anyone who knew Lee wasn't surprised at all by this. And anybody who knew Jackson wasn't surprised because everyone was led to believe that Jackson and Lee were already married, sort of like what happened with Lee and Igor, because behavioral patterns. Lee and Peggy, they basically hated each other, but a lot of people thought it was because they were so similar and that they were bound to clash. Lee thought that Peggy was a nymphomaniacal bitch with bad taste and too much money. Peggy thought that Lee was a controlling and meddling bitch, but there was also a weird thing about German Jews in New York hating Russian Jews. That part was pretty confusing. And on November 8th, 1943, Jackson Pollock's solo show opened. Everyone thought Jackson looked like a little boy dressed up for Sunday school. He was clean-shaven and wearing a suit and tie, standing there looking super uncomfortable and just staring at the floor. But Lee knew exactly how drunk Jackson was the entire time, which some people also saw as he staggered to and from the bathroom. Jackson's show had mixed reviews. Uh, here's a few quotes from the guest book that Peggy put out. Quote, Pollock unnerved me. And also, uh, I had to leave. The guy is sick and I just couldn't take it. And a belch from the unconscious. And art critics were touch and go too. No one really knew what they were looking at. No one's ever done anything like this before on canvas. There were some positive reviews, uh, like from a critic named Clement Greenberg, who will become more of a central figure later on. But a lot more people were just kind of confused and taken aback. I guess the best way to describe it was people were kind of intrigued, but they wanted to see what was next. You know, like Jackson wasn't quite there yet. But there was one painting that was coming due soon that Jackson hadn't touched. And that was Peggy Guggenheim's mural, which was supposed to be delivered before a huge party after the new year. 
It got so bad that a week before the painting was due, Jackson kicked Lee out of the studio to her parents' place in Long Island. When Lee came back a day before the painting was due, a day, the canvas was still blank. And as day turned to night, something clicked. And when Jackson finally touched brush to canvas, he didn't stop. And from inside of Jackson, memories of the Grand Canyon, the wild horses on the run, and his horse-murdering trip with Sandy and Red, it all boiled to the surface. And with enormous strokes of black, he painted herds of horses in chaos, and then they started to blend together and overlap. And the painting also began to include images of humans, bulls, buffaloes, and the American West, which I still hate, and everything from Jackson's childhood exploded from his mind. And 15 hours later, when he was done, the mural that started out as images and memories from his brain turned into a panoramic view of Western chaos and, quote, primal alarm. And I'll post an image of it. It's pretty crazy. A chaos is an apt description. When the mural was dry, Jackson rolled the canvas and brought it to Peggy's apartment. When the mural was unrolled and he began to assemble it in the lobby, Jackson saw that it was too long by about eight inches and he had a fucking meltdown. The obvious solution was, and you'll see how obvious this was based on the image, just cut a few inches off each side. It's the type of painting where nobody would notice. And that's exactly what Marcel Duchamp and some other guy did. They took all day and carefully shortened the painting by a few inches, while Jackson broke into Peggy's liquor cabinet and began to chug. And again, think about where we are right now. With everything Jackson's been through, he now has an 8-foot by 20-foot mind-bogglingly personal and powerful mural being put up in Peggy Guggenheim's home. And as the mural was being erected in Peggy's lobby, Jackson walked into Peggy's apartment where the giant party was already in full swing. And near blackout drunk, he stumbled through the crowd incoherently, and he walked up to a giant fireplace, unzipped his pants, and started to pee everywhere. Which, again, oddly, is the perfect place for us to put our story down for the week. So tune in next episode to see how Jackson's behavior affects his professionalism. And honestly, it, again, it's going to be more of a roller coaster. When I said in episode one that that's what this story was, I was not kidding. If you're enjoying the show so far, do me a favor, shoot down in the Apple Podcast app and throw me five stars. Uh, it's dumb and feels extraneous, uh, I agree, but unfortunately it's the specific metric by which podcasts are measured, so uh, it is what it is. Uh, and it's at Artholes Podcast and artholespodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's it. Take care, everybody, and I will talk to you next episode. Let me hear that choir. Oh, what a tune for Colossia, ink, a dinkity, a dinkadoo. Let me hear that band. Stupendous. Now let me hear the trumpets. That's not a trumpet. That's not a trumpet.